I'm going to, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5, so if you have your Bibles, you can open up there, we're going to dig into that a little bit. I actually wrote in my notes as I was preparing this week, Daniel week question mark. What week are we on? 48? 12. 12. Week 12 as we journey through the book of Daniel. So uh, we're getting towards the middle part here and uh, some good stuff that God has been doing in us and through us, but he's been teaching us as we've studied through Daniel. So uh, we're going to go um, through the first 16 verses of Daniel chapter 5. If you've grown up in church at all, you've probably recognized this story as we have with many of the stories in Daniel. But as we have been talking about Daniel, this is really uh, pointing towards and teaching us as it was for Daniel and some of his friends, how to live faithfully unto Christ in a very unfaithful culture, okay? And so that's kind of our byline, byline and our theme as we've gone through this. So we have just finished three weeks in chapter four. Greg finished up last week, chapter four, and we finally, finally see King Nebuchadnezzar, four weeks, sorry. Um, we finally see King Nebuchadnezzar get it. Right? He's been a witness to and he's seen firsthand the faithfulness of Daniel and the miraculous ways that God has worked through Daniel and through some of his friends. And finally, after God made him into basically an animal in a field for a long time, his right mind came to him and he, and he finally got it. And we're going to actually go back uh, later on here to the end of chapter 4 that we read last week. So then there's this break. Right? And we're going to pick up after about 23 years, 23 years later, we're going to pick up in chapter 5. So after King Nebuchadnezzar died, there were four other kings of Babylon. Remember, the Israelites, Daniel being one of them, were in captivity in this nation of Babylon. Um, and God had called them to be there in captivity and to live faithfully in captivity because they were going to be a witness to what God was going to do there. And guess what? Thousands of years later, we're sitting here reading about it and studying it now because it's applicable to us now, here in 2016, in the USA. So, um, we're going to read about King Belshazzar. And what, as, before we dive into that, I want to give some historical context. Um, I was a history major, a world history major in college, um, because I liked history, and I thought I'd be a teacher, and I don't know if that ever will happen, but... Um, God had other plans. But I love studying this. I've been reading through um, this past week. I read through a biography on Abraham Lincoln. I love these biographies as they dig into the historical context of leaders and great men and women that have lived throughout time. And what we find here is a historical um, rendering of what happened in the time of the kingdom of Babylon. Okay, so we're not just reading good stories that sound really cool, and if you were in Sunday school way back in the day, they had the little felt things that you put on the board, if you, if you remember that, and you stuck like the lions around Daniel and you know, the lions and those kinds of things. Some of you don't even know what felt is because you're young and all you know is Pokemon stuff, um, which I did here where a Pokestop or whatever that means, I have no idea what that means. Okay. We'll carry on. Um, I'll get on the tangent there and no one will like me afterwards. Um, so, so what's interesting about this story, we're going to pick up verse 1 of chapter 5, says King Belshazzar. 
Up until the mid-1800s, there was no other place in the Bible or any other historical documents that mentioned King Belshazzar. Okay? So up until mid-1800s, when, what's his name, John George Taylor was doing some archaeological work in the Middle East, up until that point, this was the only place his name was mentioned. So there was no context of where he came from, how he became the king of Babylon, all those kinds of things, until uh, John George Taylor, sounds like a country singer, um, in the mid-1800s, he uncovered some writings in the Middle East that actually mentioned who Belshazzar was. And he was actually the son, he wasn't the rightful king, he was the son of King Nabonidus, who was the fourth king after King Nebuchadnezzar. So there's King Nebuchadnezzar, there was another king I can't pronounce, another one, another one, and then this guy, Nabonidus, I think is how you pronounce it. And he had a son named Belshazzar. So King Nabonidus was out doing something. He was in a far off land, doing what kings do back in those days, and so he left his young son, Belshazzar, in charge of the kingdom which, as we'll find out, was a dumb idea. Because Belshazzar's, Belshazzar is an idiot, and we're going to figure out why in just a moment. So, um, you, you'll see as we journey through the first 16 verses today, and then finish up uh, next week reading this story, that Belshazzar was, although he was not rightfully king, he stood in the place of his father as king, while his dad was out doing whatever he was doing in far off distant lands, probably killing a lot of people and gaining more territory for the Babylonian Empire. And he's here. Now the problem is, as we pick up this story, is that Belshazzar and what we're going to read, they, the city in which they were in were actually under attack while we read this, while this is happening. Okay? So keep that in mind. They're in a city. They're under attack by the Medes, so this foreign um, group of people is coming in to take over and try to conquer the Babylonian Empire. So we're going to read chapter 5, starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Okay? Remember, they're being attacked. So he's got security and army all around trying to protect the city, and while they're doing that, what's he doing? He's partying. Okay. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, meaning his former part of his lineage, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So, in the midst of this party, there's these vessels, these golden um, vessels that had been stolen from the temple in Israel and brought to Babylon and kind of were these trophies of victory. And so they were in the trophy case and Belshazzar in his drunken state says, you know what, let's get those out and let's drink out of those. These holy vessels that were set apart by the Israelites in the temple are now being used as beer mugs. Verse 3, then they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Okay, so there's the context of this awesome party happening. Verse 5, immediately the fingers of a human hand 
appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the, men, to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So those of us that have been here for this series, does this sound familiar? Right? Nebuchadnezzar a couple times had these dreams and needed an interpretation. Who'd they call on? They called Daniel. Right? He came in and he interpreted the dreams and this is what is happening here. Verse 8. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. But the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen, queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. If you're interested in studying some more, I was doing some studying this week, read 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25, 2 Chronicles 36, Jeremiah 52. Those all give a backdrop for what's happening here, where the vessels from the temple had come from. And it also gives a better picture of this Babylonian empire. See, we've been reading through and we've seen some pretty awesome things happen with Daniel, right? And then uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace. Um, we're going to get to the lion's den in another chapter. Um, we've read these where Daniel has interpreted all these dreams. Pretty awesome stuff. But that was in the context of the kingdom, like the, the center, the capital of the Babylonian Empire. Those stories happen in and around the king, king Nebuchadnezzar and the other kings of Babylon. What we don't see in this book in particular right now is the wider context of the Babylonian Empire. How, how were empires formed back in the day? It wasn't through democratic elections, was it? No. People were killed and slaughtered. 
And if you read 2 Kings 24 and 25 or 2 Chronicles 36, you get a context for what was actually unfolding. And it gives us a greater depth of understanding of, of the risk that Daniel and his friends took by standing up to the kings and standing faithful to their, to their faith in Jesus, in God the Father. Because there were thousands and thousands of men, women, and children that were being slaughtered across this Babylonian Empire. And when you, you feel the weight of that, it gives you a greater appreciation for what Daniel was doing here. And now we're seeing Daniel, 23 years later, since he has encountered Nebuchadnezzar, now he's facing this, this young punk, Belshazzar, and he's this old man now entering in. Um, I love this. Let me first look at this. God steps in. Um, if we can go to this image. Rembrandt uh, painted this beautiful work of art. Um, it's one of his more famous ones. And um, you can see up in the right-hand corner the hand of God writing these words. And next week, Greg's going to dig into what those meant and the implications of them. You see some of the wives, the concubines, the lords around Belshazzar with that really awesome hat he has on, right? And in, in different versions, or uh, I can't see it well here, but his, his face is pale, right? You read that his knees knocked together. The dude was scared out of his mind. Because this hand he saw, and then he saw these words, they were left on the wall. He had no idea how to interpret them. No one else knew, right? And so Rembrandt gives this beautiful depiction of what it looks like. And then you go on, and um, we've been using a couple books here um, as we've studied through Daniel. Um, David Helm writes this. Imagine this. The only option they had. No one else could interpret these dreams, so they called on Daniel. But he's an old man now, and he's coming before this young leader. And, he, and, and this is how David Helm describes it. Aged Daniel enters the banquet hall. I envision his face now creased, but his gait still strong. He is calm and the only one who is clear-headed. Remember, everybody's wasted and drunk and partying. He looks at the king, a man considerably younger than himself, but whose face is fallen, feet unsure, and body convulsing in uncontrollable shakes. This mature, elderly man stands before a foolish, intoxicated youngster. So there's the, this two different worlds coming together. You have this faithful Daniel who we've read about and now who's older in years. Um, we know that though he was in captivity, God never promised that he would leave captivity. God promised that he would be with him in the midst of it. So now he's this old man and he's coming before this young dude who's not even the rightful king, who's having this party, debauchery, drunkenness, in the midst of his empire under attack. And he comes before this young guy. And, and we're going to read next week how he interacts with um, Belshazzar. But here's the spoiler alert. Um, it doesn't go good for Belshazzar. Okay? Um, the party ends with the Medes storming the gates. They kill Belshazzar and they take over the kingdom. By the end of the night, it was all gone. This rebellious young punk 
lost everything. And we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about arrogance and pride today. And I have been praying all week. I've been praying even this morning as as we came in that God does some work in our hearts. Many of us here today are followers of Jesus Christ. We've submitted our lives to Him. But there is rebellion and arrogance and there's pride in our hearts that we have to continually do battle with. We're going we're to look at, at what this looks like. But we need to remember that power is fleeting, especially when it's propped up with arrogance and pride. And that's what we see in Belshazzar. We'll see the end of the story next week, how everything crumbles, that it falls apart, because he tried to do it himself. He tried to, to build this kingdom himself. So what do we do? That's all history, right? That all happened in the past. How does this, what does this have to do with us? Um, Brian Chaplin, in his book that we're studying through, the repent, he says this, the repentant reap the rewards of grace, and the rebellious reap the consequences of wrath. See, the beautiful thing about the God we serve is that he's so holy, he's so perfect, that we have no right to enter his presence, except by the blood of Jesus. Except by that one way, that one truth, that one life in Jesus Christ. It's only through Him that we can stand before the God of all creation. Because He's so holy. He can't have anything that's unholy around Him. And, and we're going we're gonna to look at these two words. Rebellion and repentance. Because we see in Belshazzar a rebel. But if we look back a few verses... We see Nebuchadnezzar finally, after 30, 40 years, finally coming to a place of repentance. And so we see these two chapters that God put together, chapter 4 and chapter 5, we see what repentance looks like, and we see what rebellion looks like. We see the results of repentance, and we see the results of rebellion. And I believe the Holy Spirit really wants to speak to our hearts today because He's been doing damage to my heart this week on where is my rebellion? Where are the pieces in my heart that are still saying, no, I don't think so. I don't want to follow that, God. I don't want to do that, God. I want to, I want to live in my own arrogance and pride. And God is, is reaching to us through this word, through this historical context of Daniel. To show us what this looks like. So let's first look at what rebellion is. Belshazzar is a perfect example of rebellion. The definition from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary says that rebellion is opposition to one in authority or dominance. Or another uh, definition, open, armed, and usually unsuccessful defiance of or resistance to an established government. I love that phrase, usually unsuccessful. Raise your hand if you've done anything out of rebellion in your life. Okay, so we should all raise our hands, right? It could be something as simple as mom says to do X and you say no. It could be something as big as God says go there and you say, you know what, I'm going to hit the other direction. It's too hard. 
right? We all have rebellion. And it leads to some pretty crazy places in our lives. See, Belshazzar was this young, pompous, blasphemous, arrogant man who had been given power that he, would, he was not ready to handle. He's not even the rightful king, but he takes the opportunity and his status to act as if he is. See, this rebellious spirit, we can see it in, in Belshazzar, it's arrogance, it's pride. We can even imagine this party that he's having. Right? All these women around, all his friends, thousands of people around him, they're drinking out of holy vessels and making a mockery of it. And we can point our finger, finger at him and say, he's an idiot, I'm not like him. But are we? Where's the rebellion in our hearts? We've been seeing it, I haven't had a chance to watch a lot of the Olympics, but um, We've seen it in the Olympics. It's amazing how some of the greatest athletes have the, um, I guess I would say, courage or gall to say, I'm the greatest in the world. I'm the greatest that has ever lived or ever run this race or ever competed in this event. And, and yet they're not God. And they could blow a hamstring at any moment and their career could be over. Right? They don't own their life or the world. And yet they can stand up. Last night, my son and I stayed up and watched um, the UFC fight. Conor McGregor and uh, Nate Diaz. Two of the most arrogant men I've ever seen. Did any, do anybody know about these guys? Okay. Unbelievable. First of all, it was an amazing fight. But just the arrogance, the way they spoke to each other, the way they presented themselves, the way they have been presenting themselves to to the public, millions of people around the world looking at these guys saying, wow, these guys are great. These guys are cool. And yet, it can be going like that. Because they're just men. Yeah, they can probably kill me in three seconds, but they're just men. There's arrogance all around us. Politics, right? We see it. We, there, there's almost a reality. Some of us experience it when we have to write a resume and apply for new jobs. Um, we have to kind of promote ourselves and be a little bit arrogant and prideful about what we've done or who we are. And of course, it's plastered all over TV during the, the political season right now. Right? This constant theme of, I'm better, he's worse, she's worse, I'm the best. Choose me, not them. Right? But then you can also see it on the other end of the spectrum. I, many of you know I work down at the city mission. It's, it blows my mind. I, I have conversations with men and women that are strung out on, on drugs, are homeless, and they'll, they'll come with this arrogant attitude saying, you owe me. It's not my fault I got here. I'm going to blame him and her and them. And they won't take responsibility. It could be the most wealthy person on the planet to the most destitute person on the planet. Guess what? The, the stream that runs through all of us is pride. Doesn't matter where you are. And we all have to do battle with this. See, in many ways, our culture, this unfaithful culture that we live in, it teaches us to be prideful, to be arrogant, to have this attitude like Belshazzar. Because how else are we going to get ahead? 
Are we going to overcome other people if we don't have confidence? If we don't think we're the best? There is a different way. So then we look at Nebuchadnezzar as repentant. I want to flip back to chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, I think it will be on the screen. Just read a few verses here. This is after he comes to his senses and finally, finally, finally Nebuchadnezzar gets it. Verses 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? I wrote in my, along the side here, you can write in your Bible, it's a good thing to do, the word repentance. This is a beautiful image of what repentance looks like. We're going to talk about that. And then down at third, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the, and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And then it jumps right into King Belshazzar, who got humble in a big way. And if any of us are going to be honest as followers of Jesus Christ, we can think of situations and times and moments when God humbled us. And He crushed us and He broke us. And it was beautiful. Repentance it is a gift that God gives us. Um, in the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, repentance is defined like this. It's a change of mind. Also can refer to regret or remorse accompanying a realization that wrong has been done, or to any shift or reversal of thought. In its biblical sense, repentance refers to a deeply seated and thorough turning from self to God. It occurs when a radical turning to God takes place, an experience in which God is recognized as the most important fact of one's existence. I love that phrase. Recognizing that God is the most important fact of one's existence. Repentance I've always taught it like this. You're going this way. Choose whatever. It's the job. It's my family. It's the drugs. It's whatever. I'm headed this direction. Repentance means I turn a 180. I'm going to leave this stuff behind and I'm running towards God. It's not, um, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Because then you're just standing still, still facing the wrong direction. Repentance means, I'm sorry, forgive me, Jesus, I need you. That turning and going the other way. Is it easy and does it happen in a moment? Sometimes. But for most of us, this turning process is a continual turning process, right? Because you repent of one area that God shows you and you start running towards Him and then the closer you get to this holy God, guess what? There's more unholiness in me that i got to repent of and turn from. <coughs> So, you know, I was thinking over the last week or two, what's a good example to share about this? And uh, I think maybe Greg said it, or I, someone else said it that I was listening to. Probably not Greg, because it sounded much better. Um, just kidding. Is he in here? Good. He's downstairs. All right. Um, and I, I had to go back to me. I, 
had to go back to my story. Greg talks about it. A lot of good, solid Bible teachers talk about the fact that if, if someone's up here teaching the Bible and they're not allowing the word they're teaching to you to also affect and change them, then you probably shouldn't be listening to them. Because there's no way to study this and dig into it and share it with others in a way that doesn't have it affect you in, in a way that's going to reflect onto other people. So I'm digging into this, preparing all week, and I came to the fact that I'm just going to tell what God's done in my life. Because I was a rebel, right? Next year, I'll be 40. For the first 20 years of my life, I was a rebel. I was like Belshazzar. Now, the kind of weird part is that I grew up in a Christian home. My parents loved Jesus. I was around church, in church, all the way up until high school when I finally kind of broke away and used excuses about my relationship with my dad being tense and, and, and running away from what they wanted for me and trying to do my own thing. So, of course, that leads to, in high school and college, that leads to partying and girls and drinking and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I was 20 years, 19, going on 20, down at school in North Carolina. And uh, I was not in a good place. Um, I wasn't quite in train wreck mode, but I was on that, I was headed that direction. And my rebellion was so messed up that I would oftentimes, because I knew going to church was what I was supposed to do, so I would oftentimes get wasted on Saturday and get up and go to church on Sunday just to help me feel better about myself. I was a mess. I was in a bad relationship. And uh, there was a, a couple turning points. It was the, the fall of my sophomore year and uh, a teammate of mine on my wrestling team, a uh, freshman, kind of a, a new stud that came in, he was cutting weight for a tournament that, that year. This was in 98, 97, 1997. Um, and he was cutting weight, and he had a heart attack and died. And I remember we, we got on the team bus and drove down to Florida to be at the funeral. And I still get chills. There were thousands of people that came out to this funeral. His son, the only son of a single mom, Dude loved Jesus. And so story after story at this funeral was about how God had used this young man in his short 17 years of life to impact them. And I remember riding back on the bus um, and just journaling and writing and questioning God, asking these questions kind of that are up there. Who am I? Where am I at? What's going on? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to tell me, God? And then I think that started my journey of repentance because my life over the next following six months got even worse. Um, and there was one night where I ended up with a knife to my wrist thinking, you know what, what's the point? And thankfully God spared me. And uh, by May of that following year, um, I ended up here in Schenectady through weird relationship and friendship that my dad had. I ended up here in Schenectady and that May I was sitting in a similar service to this on a Sunday night and I was just crushed by God's grace. I 
got down on my face and I said, I can't do it anymore. And I turned and I said, I just, that option doesn't work. It's not working for me. And I said, I gotta choose you. And I ran to Jesus. And I remember going back to my room that night and writing a long letter to my dad that started the process of reconciliation. It's still at work today. And over the last, the next year will be 20 years of this journey of repentance and following after Jesus. It has not been easy. It's been God continually showing me and revealing things to me. And even this week, as I just wanted to preach something to you guys and walk away, God's showing me the pride and arrogance of my own heart again. And how I have to run back to Him. And we all have stories like this, don't we? Some of us are still on the first 20, or in the first half, we're still in the rebellion stage, and we have not yet fully submitted our lives to Jesus Christ. We've tried to um, modify our behaviors in a way that makes us look Christian and look like Christ followers, but we're still controlling most of it. And I believe God's saying, please, today, be grieved by that arrogance and run to me. Some of us are on that journey of repentance and we've been following Jesus for a long time and I believe today He's going to show you things or He is showing you things by His Spirit. Those little parts of your heart that are still nasty and closed off and arrogant and saying, God, I got this. You can have the rest, but I got this part. You can't have this. Brian uh, Chapel says, but if sin has no consequence, if evil has no check, if justice never comes, then what good is God? And what benefit is His grace? If grace is amazing, then it must rescue us for something. We have to recognize and acknowledge how nasty and broken trying to do life in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own sin really is. That it not only hurts you, but it grieves the heart of God. And I guarantee you, it's hurting many, many people around you. You are not an island in and of yourself. So you need to deal with your sin not only for yourself, but for those around you. I, I wish Nebuchadnezzar had not taken 30, 40 years to come to a place of repentance. Because those previous years were sowing a legacy of evil, of sin, of brokenness. What if he had come to Christ and come to God early when Daniel first interpreted the dream? How much different might the kingdom have looked like, his kingdom look like? But he waited, and God's still gracious, and he's still saving people on their deathbed and rescuing them and setting them right and, and entering them into the kingdom. That's a beautiful thing. But I, I pray for my kids that they don't have to do 20 years like I did. That they can change Sooner. They can repent sooner. So what, is, what does rebellion look like? It's denying Christ. Some of you are sitting here and you have never submitted your life to Jesus Christ. You say things like, I'll live life on my own. I don't need God. Only weak people repent. And you'll stay there as long as you deny God. As long as you stay rebellious. Some are doubtful of God. The, the church has hurt me. Um, this person hurt me. 
I don't know if I totally understand all of the Bible. We'll join the club. Okay? Uh, I'm scared of giving up control. God hasn't answered the prayers the way I wanted Him to. We have excuse after excuse, so we doubt God and we don't fully submit to Him. Then there's the secret sins in our lives, right? Whether it's the porn or the racism or the unforgiveness. All of these point to a rebellious heart that says, God, you can't have control in these areas. Some of us are really following after God. We want to be a Christ follower, but, but we also have this lie that's seeping into us because of the unfaithful culture we live in that says, um, I'm going to follow Jesus, but he's no better or no worse than any other religion or faith out there. So if my friends want to believe one way, um, that, that's cool with them, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to church here at City View, or I'm going you know, to read my Bible every day because that's what they tell us we should do. But there's no life-giving power that comes from the recognition that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And we don't have a grieving spirit for those that are lost and apart from Him. We kind of just float around and say, we check the box on those surveys that say, I'm a Christian. But we're not actually engaging in the culture around us and living on purpose for Him. So I want to, this, this chapter we're reading in Daniel chapter 5 really isn't pointing towards what we see in the truth and life of Jesus Christ when He comes on earth. He dies on that cross, he's buried, he rises again, and he ascends into heaven, and he's seated at the Father's right hand, and then this movement of God's people unfolds. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul becomes one of the victims to God's work. Right? He finally, that, that Damascus Road experience where Saul, the guy who was going to arrest and persecute and probably kill Christians, is confronted with God, he's blinded, and guess what? The dude repents, and he turns the other way, and he says, my way, my religion of doing life just doesn't work anymore. i got to follow after this Jesus. And he does, and we read most of the New Testament are his letters to this movement of God's people. So I want to read just a few verses from chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. He says this starting in verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son, the perfect holy son. That's why we have a way to God, this holy God. Because his son was perfect and stands in our place. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Paul's talking to Christians. He's saying, you have accepted God. You've repented. You've turned. You've run to God. You now are people of the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The rebellion and the repentance. He goes on to say in verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
And he goes on to talk about us being heirs of God, sons and daughters of the Most High. When we repent, when we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that that has to be real, because it's so much better than this, we repent and we turn, and we run to God, that confession leads to some transformation that unfolds in our lives. Confession is that first step to repentance. And, and I, I don't apologize that this is not an easy message necessarily. Because I had to deal with it myself all week. So you get it now too. That confession means we use our mouths to say these words. Jesus, you are Lord. Just like Nebuchadnezzar did at the end of chapter 4. God, you are Lord Almighty. And when we're crushed by that reality, that's a beautiful crushing. That means we don't have to be in control anymore. We don't have to try to figure this thing out. We don't have to try to get all these sins put in order so life doesn't fall apart. We can just hold on by the skin of our teeth and hope that things get better. We can say, God, those are sins. That's arrogance. That's pride. That's pulling me away from you, and I have to run and turn towards you. Psalm 38, verse 18 says, I confess my iniquity, my sin. I'm sorry for my sin. Romans 10, 9, a very famous passage just a couple of chapters later. If you confess with your mouth, Paul says, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then John, later on at the end of the New Testament, writes, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then James would say later, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The reality is we have a choice to continue in rebellion or to turn in repentance. And I am not the oldest guy in the room, but I've lived long enough and followed Jesus long enough, closing in on more than half of my life, to tell you He is better. His ways are better. I know it's hard to give things up. I know it's hard to turn away from those sins, especially the secret ones that no one else really needs to know about. But they're breaking you down. They're breaking our hearts apart. And we've got to turn towards God where He can take those, those hearts of stone and turn them heart, into hearts of flesh that He can mold and make into something beautiful. The reality of Scripture, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar, whether it's Daniel, whether it's any, Paul, James, John, all of these guys are images to us of what God can do when, when we repent, we turn, we confess, and we run to Jesus. And we allow Him to give us a spirit. So I'm going to ask you to respond today. We're going to do communion in just a few moments. Brian Chappelle says in, in his book, in this chapter on chapter 5, he says, Grieving for sin is hard work. Calling for the deepest searching of our own hearts and motives. It is hard work to say, I've got to admit to somebody that I'm struggling that I'm lost, that I'm hurting, that I'm arrogant, that I'm prideful, whatever it is. It's hard work to do that. 
But God never said this life of following him is going to be easy. But it's going to be good. In the pain, in the struggles, in the things that we go through as we turn and repent. So I'm going to ask right now that if God has pointed out to you today an area of rebellion in your own heart, maybe you're a follower of Jesus Christ and he's just kind of pulled back the veil and said, you know what it is. And you know to be more faithful to following Christ, you've got to do something about that. Or maybe you're sitting here today, and I pray for many of you today, that you have never truly repented and submitted your life to Jesus Christ. You know enough, but you're looking on the outside in, instead of being in the family of God. And it starts with repentance. So if there's an area of rebellion, whatever place that might look like, I'm going to ask you to stand. If God has pointed out an area of rebellion in your heart, you can stand with me. I'm right up here. Verse 1. So, the good thing is we're not alone. Right? That rebellious part of your heart, or that rebellious heart that you have that's pulling you away from God, or not allowing you to go deeper in God, Guess what? We're in this together. And when we take communion today, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're saying that His blood doesn't just cover me so I can use it as a scapegoat to go do those things. His blood, His body was broken for me so that I can live fully, wholly uh, pursuing Him in this life here on earth. I'm going to ask you today, to confess to somebody. James made those words very clear to us. Confess your sins to one another. If you don't confess them to somebody, I, you probably aren't going to change. You probably aren't going to truly repent. It doesn't have to be here right now. Maybe it can be. Ed, myself, Greg, we're around to talk to you and pray for you. But it might be someone next to you. It might be someone you have to call later on. But confess to someone, this is an area of rebellion, and I'm turning. I want to choose and turn towards and pursue God. But you got to confess it. you got to talk about it. you got to let people into your life. So I pray now, Holy Spirit, that from this story, from history gone by, you are pulling truths and power and reality to us right now by your spirit. Holy Spirit, please attack our hearts. Expose those areas that we're trying to keep hidden from one another and from you. Lord Jesus, make us people of repentance and not rebellion. Give us courage to speak the words to somebody else today. Mom, Dad, brother, sister, friend, pastor, whoever it might be. I want to turn from this thing. And I want to run to Jesus. Pray for me. Help me. Hold me accountable. God, do a significant work in our lives today. Let this be a milestone for us today. On this day in 2016, 
that that area or that entire life turn towards a, uh, from a place of rebellion to a place of repentance, pursuing Jesus, yes, Jesus. and being transformed by the Holy Spirit yes. day in and day out. Thank you for the power of your word, Jesus. We want to invite you as we want to ask you to take the time you need. But we're going to have the, the juice and crackers. There's no power in this. It's just a symbol of Jesus' body in the cracker and his blood in the juice. Saying that we recognize, we acknowledge, and we lift up that Jesus is all-powerful because of what he has done for us. We now, as followers of Jesus Christ, because we have accepted his death on that cross as our salvation, we now can stand holy before the Father. We are no longer outsiders, but we are family. We are sons and daughters of the King. So when you're ready, as we sing this song, feel free to come up, take the juice and the crackers. And when you're ready, at any point, let's take communion. Maybe it's with somebody that you're here with. And just pray for one another. Maybe you need to confess something now. Let's respond to Jesus the way that he deserves.